This program is made possible by BibleWayMedia.org, overseen by the Uloga Church of Christ in Uloga, Oklahoma. You're listening to Opening the Scriptures with Don Boyd. Welcome to the program today. This is Don Boyd with the Moody Church of Christ. I want to welcome you to Opening the Scriptures. We're going to continue in our studies in the book of Job today in Job chapter 14. In Job chapter 14, Job is continuing his speech that he started back in chapter 12. And he begins by desperately speaking, uh, depressingly speaking, excuse me, about the short lifespan of human beings. Job chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. He says that man that is born of woman is of few days and full of trouble. He cometh forth like a flower and is cut down. He fleeth also as a shadow and continueth not. Job is a depressed man. He's talking about his present life, his, the great disease that he has and all the calamities that have come his way. You know, he had lived in prosperity, but now he has a pessimistic view of life. And Job there describes the brevity there of life. He calls it something like a beautiful flower that is cut down and a shadow that goes away quickly. You might remember that Jacob said about the same thing to Pharaoh back in Genesis chapter 47 verse 9. Genesis chapter 47 verse 9. That verse says, And Jacob said unto Pharaoh, The days of the years of my pilgrimage are a hundred and thirty years. Few and evil have the days of the years of my life been, and have not attained unto the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their pilgrimage. So you think about Jacob, he's talking about his life. Everything that went on there between he and his brother Esau and then between he and his parents and going off to Laban and Laban giving him Rachel and uh, Leah, excuse me, instead of Rachel and on and on, Jacob thinking that Joseph had died, all these evil things that had happened to him. Well, Job is expressing the same type of sentiment. Job then wonders why such a frail being as himself is worth the infinite God's time and effort to bring such punishment upon him. Job 14.3 He says, And dost thou open thine eyes upon such an one, and bringest me into judgment with thee? You know, Job believes that he is the object of God's close scrutiny here. And he wonders why God is focusing so much on him. Why are you doing that, he's asking. Job then says that not even God can judge someone as clean who is as unclean as Job must obviously be. Job 14.4 Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Not one. So no human can stand before God innocent on their own accord. Now, next, Job says that God has set the time frame of the life of humankind. Job 14, verse 5 there. He says, seeing his days are determined, The number of his months are those with thee. Thou hast appointed his bounds that he cannot pass. You go over to the book of Psalms, and let's look at Psalm 90, verse 10. Psalm 90, verse 10. That verse says, The days of our years are threescore years and ten. And if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their strength, labor, and sorrow. For it is soon cut off, 
and we fly away. So right there, we have a you know, certain number of years that we're going to live in this life. Now, Adam Clark said concerning this verse, man may endeavor to pass the bound, and God may here and there produce a Thomas Parr, who died in 1635, age 152, and Henry Jenkins, who died in 1670, age 169, but these are rare instances and do not affect the general term, nor can death be avoided, unquote. Well, next, Job concludes that since our lifespan is so short, at least God could look away for a short time and let him be at ease before he dies, Job 14, verse 6. Turn from him that he may rest, till he shall accomplish as a hireling his day. So Job is pleading with God to let him have some comfort before he dies. Job then says that a tree that is cut down has hope to live again, Job 14, 7 through 9. He says, for there is hope of a tree if it be cut down, that it will sprout again, and that the tender branch thereof will not cease. Though the root thereof wax old in the earth, and the stock thereof die in the ground, yet through the scent of water it will bud and bring forth bowels like a plant. So Job is here saying, you know, just like a tree, if it is cut down, it's going to put up a shoot from the root. I know last winter I had a fig tree and it, it died. The upper part of it died, but it then came out again. It, it put forth a shoot from the root and that tree's more of a bush now, but it did come back. And many trees that are cut down will come back like a bush or whatever. But then Job says in Job 14.10, if a human being dies, he or she will not live again on this earth, Job 14.10. But man dieth and wasteth away. Yea, man giveth up the ghost, and where is he? Albert Barnes made this statement concerning the verse, and I quote him. The idea is he entirely vanishes. He leaves nothing to sprout up again. There is no germ, no shoot, no living root, no seminal or formative principle. Of course, this refers wholly to his living again on the earth and not to the question about his future existence, unquote. So human beings are not like trees that have hope to live again on the earth. A human being has no hope to live again on the earth. And in verses 11 and 12 of Job chapter 14, Job's make, Job makes a statement that implies he knew something about the resurrection. Job 14, 11, and 12. As the waters fail from the sea, and the flood decayeth and dryeth up, so man lieth down, and riseth not, till the heavens be no more, they shall not awake nor be raised out of their sleep. Well, first of all, he gives this description or this illustration. Waters evaporate completely and leave a dry bed. And man passes entirely away and is not seen again until the heavens are destroyed. Over in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, we have when the heavens will be destroyed. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. So right there, this old world is going to come to an end. The universe will be destroyed at that point. 
Adam Clark said concerning Job 14, 11, and 12, and I quote, Men shall not, be, uh, shall not, like cut down trees and plants, reproduce their life, nor shall they arise till the heavens are no more, till the earth and all its works are burned up, and the general resurrection of human beings shall take place. Well, in Job 14, 13, Job wanted God to hide him in the grave until God's wrath was passed. And then remember Job. Job chapter 14, verse 13. Oh, that thou wouldest hide me in the grave, or Sheol is the Hebrew word there, that thou wouldest keep me secret until thy wrath be passed, that thou wouldest appoint me a set time and remember me. So Job wanted a safe and secure place to hide until the storm of God's wrath had passed him by. And then Job wanted God to set a time that he would allow Job to live again. Well, Job then asked a question that is of interest to all mankind. In Job 14, 14, he said, If a man die, shall he live again? All the days of my appointed time will I wait till my change come. Well, let's see. We know from the New Testament teaching that this body is but a shell in which our spirit is housed until the day of our death of the body occurs and our spirit enters into the Hadean realm. Now, Moses apparently knew something about this from his uh, inspiration from God. There in Genesis chapter 35, verses 16 through 18. Genesis 35, 16 through 18. The they here in verse 16 are Jacob and his family. It says, and they journeyed from Bethel, and there was but a little way to come to Ephrath. And Rachel travailed, and she had hard labor. And it came to pass, when she was in hard labor, that the midwife said unto her, Fear not, thou shalt have this son also. <clears throat> and it came to pass, as her soul was in departing, for she died, that she called his name Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. And Rachel died and was buried in the way to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. So right here we see the first instance of being said that when we die, our soul departs this body. So we know that that happens in death there. And just for a little bit of information, she called his name Benoni, which means son of my sorrow. But Jacob called his name Benjamin, which means son of the right hand. But we have that instance, have that instance there. Now you go over to James chapter 2, verse 26, we see also that death is the parting of the body and the spirit. James 2, 26. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. And then we go to the book of Luke, chapter 16, verses 22 and 23. Luke 16, 22 and 23. Here Jesus is explaining some things that happens in the next life in between the time we die and the resurrection. He says here in verses 22 and 23, it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades he lift up his eyes, being in torments, seeing Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. The King James Version there in verse 23 says hell, but it is the Greek word Hades. 
That is where the unseen spirit, that's where our spirits go when we die. And we see that there are two parts of Hades here. Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom, a place that Jesus called paradise when he told the thief on the cross that I say unto thee today thou shalt be with me in paradise. But we see that the rich man was in torments. So that is where we go when we die, either to Abraham's bosom or paradise if we've been faithful, or we go to torment if we have been unfaithful in this life. So Job here was willing to wait until his transition of life from this planet. He was willing to wait to Hades. Well, there will be no renewal of this life on earth. We will not step foot on this earth again. We know that from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians, we'll go first there, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we begin looking down here, if I can get my page turned to the right spot, verse 50. He says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep or be dead when Jesus comes back, but we all shall all be changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Now we go over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And we begin reading there in verse 13. It says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, or those that have already died, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Verse 15. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so, or in like manner, shall we be ever with the Lord. So right there, we're never going to step foot on this earth again. Jesus is not going to step foot on this earth again. We're going to meet him in the clouds at that time. Well, Job says that once Job is in the Hadean realm, he would respond to God. Job chapter 14, verse 15. He says, Thou shalt call, and I will answer thee. Thou wilt have a desire to the work of thine hands. Adam Clark says concerning this verse, Thou shalt say there shall be time no longer. Awake ye dead and come to judgment. My dissolved frame shall be united at thy call, and body and soul shall be rejoined, unquote. Well, though the body will be marred by death, God will restore it at the resurrection to a better immortal condition. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and look at verses 51 and 52. Again, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Then verse 53, for this corruptible, this corruptible body must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. You know, people are going, oh, you know, they, people want to live long. They want to live forever, things like that. Well, we are. 
We're not going to live forever on this earth, but we are going to live forever. And if we've been faithful to God, forever is a good thing to look forward to. If you haven't been faithful to God, forever is a terror. Well, Job believes that God is now torturing him and is scrutinizing his every move. And that's Job 14, verses 16 and 17. Verse 16. For now thou numberest my steps. Dost thou not watch over my sin? My transgression is sealed up in a bag, and thou sowest up mine iniquity. Job feels that God is hovering over him and has a tight, sealed record of his sins. Albert Barnes states this, and I quote, The scene is that God treated him now with severity, and he besought him to have pity on him and bring him to trial and give him an opportunity to vindicate himself. Well, Job then compares the crushing forces of nature to his hope that is destroyed. And that is Job 14, 18, and 19. And surely the mountain falling cometh to naught, and the rock is removed out of his place. The waters wear the stones. Thou washest away the things which grow out of the dust of the earth, and thou destroyest the hope of man. Job felt that he was being crushed by God, as, as if a mountain had fallen upon him, and he was being eroded away like stones being worn by rushing water. Job's hope of rising again to live on the earth was the same as the hope of a mountain being put back into its place. A rock that is moved by water or an earthquake or whatever being replaced. And the things that the water wears away, having that which was removed from them put back on them. Well, in verse 20, Job says, when man dies, he's gone away. Job 14, 20. Thou prevailest forever against him, and he passeth. Thou changest his countenance and sendest him away. <clears throat> well, God is definitely stronger than man, and man cannot stand before God, but man is vanquished and passes off the stage of the living. The change of man's countenance probably refers to either the change at death or at the change at the resurrection. And man being sent away refers to the expectation that he will live again. He's sent away, but he will not live again on the earth. In Job 14.21, Job says that honor may come to family members, but the dead don't know it. Job 14.21. His sons come to honor, and he knoweth it not. They are brought low, but he perceiveth it not of them. So when we pass from this life, we don't know what's happening on this earth. We may have children that honor come to, but we won't know it. Or we may have children that are brought low, and we're not going to know that either. Albert Barnes said concerning this verse, he is unacquainted with what is passing on the earth. Even should that occur, which is most gratifying to a parent's heart, should his children rise to stations of honor and influence, he would not be permitted to enjoy the happiness which every father feels when his sons do well. This is suggested as one of the evils of death, unquote. And then, if his children become insignificant, the dead cannot sympathize with them or help them in their trials. Uh, the dead are taken away from their family. They will visit them no more on this earth. 
And then Job says in verse 22 that the sum of the life of a person is pain of body and distress of soul. Job 14, 22. But his flesh upon him shall have pain, and his soul within him shall mourn. Adam Clark says that a man named Mr. Stock says this about this verse, quote, The flesh or body and the breath are made conscious beings, the former lamenting its putrefaction in the grave, the latter mourning over the moldering clay which it once enlivened, unquote. So Job has now concluded his request of God, but his friends are not through with him. In chapter 15, Eliphaz is going to intensify his antagonism there against Job. So now let's go look at Job chapter 15. Well, Job 15 here is the second speech of Eliphaz. Now, Eliphaz is going to change his tone in addressing Job. In his first speech, Eliphaz was somewhat diplomatic, maybe a little gentle. But now Eliphaz becomes blunt and harsh. It seems he's now ready to convict Job of the sins that he and the other two friends are certain that Job has committed to warrant the punishment that he's going through. Well, first of all, in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 15, Eliphaz accuses Job of being rash and irreverent to God. First, Eliphaz accuses Job of speaking like a fool, Job 15, 1 and 2. Then answered Eliphaz the Temanite and said, Should a wise man utter vain knowledge and fill his belly with the east wind? Well, Job had claimed to be wise back in Job chapter 12, verse 3. Job chapter 12, verse 3, he says, I am as one mocked of his neighbor who calleth upon God, and he answereth him, and the upright man is laughed to scorn. So he's talking about himself there. And Eliphaz is sarcastically telling Job he is using windy knowledge. You're full of the east wind. Well, first of all, he says vain knowledge. The word vain there is the Hebrew word ruach, which means wind. By resemblance, breath, that is a sensible or even violent exhalation. Figuratively, life, anger, unsubstantiality. So Albert Barnes says that the wind is used to denote what is unsubstantial, vain, and changing. Here, it is used as an emblem of remarks which were vain, empty, and irreverent, unquote, there. So Eliphaz is accusing Job of filling his mind and his mouth with destructive words which were as destructive as the east wind. <clears throat> the destructive force of the east wind is mentioned several times in Scripture. Look at Genesis chapter 41, Verse 23, Genesis chapter 41, verse 23. It says there, And behold, seven ears withered, thin and blasted with the east wind sprung up after them. Again, this is Pharaoh's dream there that he had that Joseph interpreted for him. And now go to Jonah chapter 4, verse 8. Jonah chapter 4, 
verse 8. It says there, And it came to pass when the sun did arise that God prepared a vehement east wind. And the sun beat upon the head of Jonah that he fainted and wished himself to die. It said, It is better for me to die than to live. So right there, a vehement east wind. Uh, Adam Clark said of this, quote, Eliphaz by these words seems to intimate that Job's speech was a perfect storm or tempest of words, unquote. Well, Eliphaz asked Job why he would use useless words and speeches to defend his cause, though Eliphaz did not point out what he was talking about. Job 15.3 Should he reason with unprofitable talk or with speeches wherewith he can do no good? Well, Eliphaz is telling Job that he hasn't proved anything with his words of little meaning that are nothing but sound instead of trying to make sense. You claim to be wise, he says, but you use windy defenses. And then Eliphaz accuses Job of being irreverent to God. Verse 4, Yea, thou castest all fear, and restraineth prayer before God. So Eliphaz thinks that Job is a great sinner and has not asked for forgiveness from God. So instead of doing what Eliphaz and his two friends knew Job needed to do, Job was making excuses and trying to justify before God, himself before God and before them. So Eliphaz says that Job's defense is just a commentary of his sins. Job 15, 5, and 6. For thy mouth uttereth thine iniquity, and thou choosest the tongue of the crafty. Thine own mouth condemneth thee, and not I. Yea, thine own lips testify against thee. So Eliphaz is saying that Job is trying to justify himself in trying to do that. You're really blaming God, Job. And Eliphaz accuses Job of using cunning arguments to defend himself like the devil did in the garden because the Hebrew word translated subtle, and we're going to look at Genesis 3.1 momentarily. The Hebrew word translated subtle in Genesis 3.1 and crafty in Job 15.5 is the same word and Strong's defines that word as cunning, usually in a bad sense. So go back to Genesis chapter 3 and look at verse 1. Genesis 3, 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? So right there, the serpent was more subtle more cunning. Job, you are using crafty. You're using the tongue of the crafty, the cunning. You're talking like the serpent in the garden there, Job, is what Eliphaz is accusing him of. Well, Eliphaz tells Job that his own mouth, Job's own mouth, is condemning him. It's not Eliphaz and his two friends that are doing that. Well, Eliphaz then attacks Job because he thinks Job is arrogant, angry, and consumed with sin. Verses 7 through 16. First of all, in verse 7, Eliphaz sarcastically asked Job if he was the if his wisdom was greater than antiquity. Are you the first man ever born? Job, verse 7. Art thou the first man that was born? Or wast thou made before the hills? So he's scoffing at Job's claim to have equal knowledge with them. That's what Job said in Job chapter 13, verse 2. Job 13, 2. Job said, 
what ye know the same I do, I know also the same do I know also. I am not inferior to you. So Eliphaz is scoffing at that. He's asking Job, if he, how great is your wisdom? Is it greater than antiquity? Well, Eliphaz then asked Job if he has a monopoly on wisdom. Job 15, 8. Hast thou heard the secret of God? And dost thou restrain wisdom to thyself? You know, Job had already made his accusation against his friends, and so it's expected that they're going to respond to that accusation. The accusation was made in Job chapter 12, verse 2, that we're referring to. <clears throat> Job here speaking says, But I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Yea, who knoweth not such things as these? Everybody knows this, Job said. So here Eliphaz is going, huh, you think you have a monopoly on wisdom. Adam Clark here says that Eliphaz is saying, quote, Hast thou hearkened in God's counsel? Wert thou one of the celestial cabinet when God said, Let us make man in our image and in our likeness? Unquote. Well, Eliphaz now asked Job what he knows that they don't know. Job 15, 9. What knowest thou that we know not? What understandest thou which is not in us? Well, Eliphaz now challenges Job to show them that point of knowledge that he knows that they don't know. And Eliphaz tells Job, you know, the old folks, they back us up. Verse 10, chapter 15. With us are both the gray-headed and the very aged men, much elder than thy father. Well, Bildad had already appealed to the wisdom of the ancients to prove his case against Job, and that's back in Job chapter 8, verses 8 through 10. Job 8, 8 through 10, Bildad said, For inquire, I pray thee, of the former age, and prepare thyself to the search of their fathers. For we are but of yesterday, and know nothing, because our days upon the earth are a shadow. Shall not they teach thee and tell thee and utter words out of their heart? So here Eliphaz is using the same thing. You know, verse 10 there, the gray-headed are with us. You know, those old folks, they back us up. The very aged men said, they're even older than your father. In other words, they know more than your father. They know more than you, Job. And then Eliphaz says that Job should appreciate how gentle God and that they, the three friends, have been with Job. Verse 11. Are the consolations of God small with thee? Is there any secret thing with thee? The literal translation of the Bible puts the verse this way. Are the comforts of God small with you? and a word that deals gently with you. Gently. Well, the word translated consolations here in the King James Version in verse 11 is the Hebrew word tankum, which means compassion or solace. So comfort there, compassion, or the compassion, or is the compassion of God small with you? And then he says, is there any secret thing? The word secret there from the Hebrew word ought means, according to Brown Driver Briggs, gentleness and softness. So Eliphaz is saying that if Job would just follow their gentle advice, God would comfort him in his affliction. Well, in verse 12, Eliphaz asked why Job is letting himself be carried away with his emotions and rolling his eyes at them. Verse 12. Why doth thine heart carry thee away 
and why do thine thy eyes wink at? Why do thine eyes wink at? The American Standard says, why do thine eyes flash? Well, Eliphaz here again is telling Job he's letting his emotions run away with him uh, to wink at, or wink, the word wink there from the Hebrew word razam means according to Strong's to twinkle the eye in mockery. Wilson's Old Testament word studies defines the word as to wink with the eyes as a gesture of pride and insolence. Well, it is translated flash in the literal translation, which says, why does your heart carry you away and why do your eyes flash? So he's basically there, he's looking at them in a way which is going, you think about somebody says something and you just roll your eyes. Oh, you can't believe that they're doing that. Well, Eliphaz in verse 13 says that Job's explosive emotions have given rise to foolish words. Job chapter 15 verse 13 that thou turnest thy spirit against God, and lettest such words go out of thy mouth. Eliphaz that Job has turned against his friends, he has turned against God, but again, Eliphaz doesn't say what words that he has in mind, and he's very vague. Adam Clark says this, and I quote, the ideas here seem to be taken from an archer who turns his eye and his spirit, or his desire, against the object which he wishes to hit, and then lets loose with his arrow that it may attain the mark, unquote. Well, Eliphaz asked Job if he is trying to separate himself from the sinfulness of humanity, verse 14 of Job 15, what is man that he should be clean? and he which is born of a woman, that he should be righteous. Well, Job, or God described Job as a perfect and uprighteous man in Job 1.1, but Job's three friends has classified Job as a rank sinner, and that's what Eliphaz is doing. Eliphaz says in verses 15 and 16, God does not trust his angels. How can he trust humans? Verses 15 and 16. Behold, he putteth no trust in his saints. The word saints there means angelic beings. Yea, the heavens are not clean in his sight. How much more abominable and filthy is man which drinketh iniquity like water? Well, Eliphaz's argument is that not even angels are clean. How much man that is so sinful and you think about it, who's he talking about? He's talking about Job. That would be a stinging and unjust insult that he just made at Job. Uh, Gary Workman in the 16th Spiritual Sword Lectureship on page 152 wrote this, and I quote, This claim is unique to Eliphaz and unsubstantiated in the rest of Scripture. We must remember that Eliphaz and the other three friends were not inspired men, and at the end God said, Ye have not spoken of me things that is right, as my servant Job hath. Job 42, 7, unquote. Well, then in the rest of the chapter here, Job 15, 17 to 35, Eliphaz warns Job about the consequences of the life of the wicked. First, Eliphaz begins to overwhelm Job with the proof of Job's personal guilt. Verses 17 through 19. I will show thee, hear me, and that which I have seen will I declare, which wise men have told from their fathers and have not hid it, unto whom alone the earth was given and no stranger passed among them. Well, first he's saying, you better listen to me, and I'm going to tell you what I've seen and what wise people before me have said about people in your shoes, Job. Kylan Delich, 
put it this way, and I quote, These fathers to whom this doctrine respecting the fate of evildoers is referred lived, as Eliphaz says in Job 15, 19, in the land of their birth and did not mingle themselves with strangers. Consequently, their manner of viewing things and their opinions have in their favor the advantage of independence, of being derived from their own experience, and also of a healthy development undisturbed by any foreign influences, and their teachings may be accounted pure and unalloyed." Unquote. Well, Eliphaz says, we all agree that suffering comes to the wicked man, verse 20. The wicked man travaileth with pain all his days, and the number of years is hidden to the oppressor. Gary Workman, quoting him again, page 154, quote, he is obviously referring or offering a rebuttal to Job's statement that the tents of robbers prosper and that and they that provoke God are secure, Job 12, 6, unquote. So he says, Job, you're writhing in pain. You're experiencing all this calamity. So my experience and the wisdom of the ancients declare you are wicked. Well, Eliphaz says then in verse 21, we all agree that the wicked man is afraid his prosperity will be taken away, Job 15, 21. A dreadful sound is in his ears. In prosperity, the destroyer shall come upon him. Well, in Job chapter 3, verse 25, in Job's first speech there, Job 3, 25, Job said, For the thing which I greatly feared has come upon me, and that, uh, that which I was afraid is come unto me. So Eliphaz is saying, Job, you're afraid your prosperity be taken away. So in my experience and the wisdom of the ancients, we declare you are wicked. Well, Eliphaz also says we all agree that the wicked man does not believe that he will not return safely from calamity and lives in constant fear. Verse 22, Job 15. He believeth not that he shall return out of darkness, and he is waited for of the sword. Well, let's go back and look at something else Job said in Job 10, 21 and 22. Job 10, 21 and 22, where he says, Before I go whence I shall not return, even to the land of darkness and the shadow of death, a land of darkness as darkness itself, and of the shadow of death without any order, and where the light is darkness. Well, Job, he says, since you are constantly living in fear and of death and constantly in fear of darkness, my experience and the wisdom of the ancients say you are wicked. In verse 23, Eliphaz, we all agree that the wicked man will be reduced to poverty and expects the day of his death at any time. Job 15, 23. It says there, he wandereth abroad for bread, saying, where is it? He knoweth that the day of darkness is ready at his hand. Well, let's look at what Job said in Job 12, 24, and 25. He said, He taketh away the heart of the chief of the people of the earth and causeth them to wander in a wilderness where there is no light, no way, excuse me. They grope in the dark without light, and he maketh them to stagger like a drunken man. So Job, Eliphaz is saying, since you described yourself as being in this situation, my experience and the wisdom of the ancients, we all declare you are wicked. In verse 24 of Job 15, Eliphaz says, we all agree the wicked man will have trouble, anguish, and fear shall prevail against him. Verse 24, trouble and anguish shall make him afraid. They shall prevail against him as a king ready to the battle. 
Well, in Job 14, 1, Job said, Man that is born of woman is few of days and full of trouble. So, Job, since you said you're full of trouble, my experience and the wisdom of the ancients declare you are wicked. Well, Eliphaz says that we all agree the wicked man is arrogant and prideful against God. Job 15, 25. For he stretcheth out his hand against God and stretcheth himself against the Almighty. Well, we go back to Job chapter 9, verses 1 through 4. But Job there stated quite the opposite of what Eliphaz is accusing him of. Job 9, 1 to 4, Then Job answered and said, I know it is so of a truth, but how should man be just with God? If he will contend with him, he cannot answer him one of a thousand. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who hath hardened himself against him and hath prospered? So right there, Job said just the opposite. Wayne Jackson in his work, The Book of Job, on page 47 said this, and I quote, Since Job will not confess his sins, Eliphaz will fill in the blanks for him, unquote. So Eliphaz is certain that Job has done this, and by his experience and the wisdom of the ancients, he declares that Job is wicked. Well, we're just about out of time today, so Lord willing, why don't we stop right there, and we're going to start, Lord willing, next time in Job 15, 26, because he kind of changes a little bit here from what he has been saying, uh, but he still is accusing Job of being a great sinner. Well, again, this is Don Boyd with the Moody Church of Christ. I want to thank you for tuning in to be with us today on Opening the Scriptures, and we look forward to being with you next time. When you're in Moody, Missouri, you're invited to visit the Moody Church of Christ, located on Highway E in Moody, Missouri. The congregation there meets on Sunday morning at 10 a.m. for Bible class, 11 a.m. for worship, and then again at 6 p.m. for Sunday evening worship. They also meet at 6 p.m. on Wednesday night for Bible study. We thank you for tuning in today. We hope you enjoyed this program. You can find out more about Bible Media by visiting us at BibleWayMedia.org. You can also find us on several uh, social media platforms now. You can find us not only on Facebook, but you can also can find us on Tumblr. You can also find us on the Twitter alternative known as Telegram and on the Facebook alternative known as MeWe. We hope you enjoyed this program. We hope you will share with others. And as always, we thank you for listening.